Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series, The Family of Influence, today with a message titled Sexual Morality and the Family. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 to 20, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. When it comes to sex and thinking about sex, no figure has had a greater impact on modern Western thinking than Sigmund Freud. Freud taught that sexual repression was the greatest psychological problem of the human race. Freud's overt hatred of Christian sexual morality was often the brunt of his relentless attacks. His book, The Future of an Illusion, puts all thinking about God in terms of wish fulfillment. Freud's description of things like guilt complex and the subconscious, the id, the ego, and the superego, and suppression of natural longings, well, this has long become a part of Western thinking and become a part of everyday language. Everything from the belief in a Freudian slip to the the belief in a subconscious mind has become a part of our thinking. Freud believed that sexual repression was the cause of everything from neurosis to all manner of mental illnesses and that all these maladies were due to suppressing our urges. He believed that the Christian view of sexual morality was harmful to our psychology. But, thought Freud, as much as we want to push our sexual urges into our subconscious, these urges are constantly leaking out. So Freud taught that everything was a phallic symbol, from mountain rocky peaks sticking out from trees to umbrellas to knives to pencils. Everything was sexual for him and reminded us of the male sexual organ. In Freud's world, all boys want to have sex with their mothers. In Freud's world, children who desire to suckle are at the oral stage of sexual desire. Being toilet trained was sexual, the anal stage of sexual desire. Everything was sexual. You know, in more recent years, all of Freud's work has been made suspect as it is now being fairly well proven that he fabricated most of his data and that all the data that was genuine only came from a study of no more than six individuals. Not one academic institution now uses him as a credible source. Indeed, it is now well known that his data is simply the work of his own invention. Freud has now been proven to be fraud. Uh, Todd Dufresne, a well-known academic, wrote, arguably no other notable figure in history was so fantastically wrong about nearly every important thing that he had to say. And yet even though while that's so, Freud's ideas are still deeply believed in popular culture and continue to shape generation after generation. The ideas about sexual repression, the need to remove harmful restrictions from free sexual expression. I mean, those ideas are now entrenched in Western thinking. We have become a deeply sexual and essential culture where one sexual taboo after another has been removed, much to the adulation and the applause of our culture. Telling people no when it comes to free sexual expression is still thought by many to be a harmful thing. Sexual freedom rather than sexual boundaries are the order of the day. And more so, Freudian ideas have deeply found their way into the thinking of Western Christians. That it is harmful to repress deeply held sexual desires is now almost a doctrine, even among some so-called Christians. Many people now believe that if a person has same-sex attraction, as an example, 
that it's asking too much if we ask them to deny that expression of their desires or even to learn how to redirect those desires. You know, the same is true about the desire for premarital sex or extramarital sex or or feelings toward multiple partners, as if sexual experience with many makes us more capable of loving and, and more in touch with who we are. And we've reaped a whirlwind in the process. Here's but one example. You know, when I was a lad, we were warned about two STDs, two sexually transmitted diseases, gonorrhea and syphilis. Today in the United States, there are more than 20 STDs, and they currently affect more than 13 million people. And so besides the two diseases mentioned, well, there's chlamydia, genital herpes, genital warts, HIV, hepatitis A, B, C, and D, human T-cell lymphotropic virus. The list is extensive. But disease is not the only whirlwind we've reaped. Consider how complicated rape cases have become. Consider the amount of child sexual abuse cases and the destroyed lives of children. Consider the divorce rates related to what we now kindly call cheating. Consider the explosion of pornography. But as they say, it's simply not possible to put the genie back in the bottle. Now, That's not to say that these kinds of things didn't happen before Freud. It would be silly to deny that all these things have been in existence before. But what Freud gave the Western world is a powerful justification for this behavior. You see, what Freud gave us was the power to trumpet the breaking of sexual restrictions as if it were a kind of virtue. And so for this week, I have argued that the way forward for Christians is that we as believers need to recapture an authentically Christian community. And that means we need to reestablish four important issues, all related to family life. The first is the importance of gender. The second is the value of marriage in a family. The third, which I'm going to speak about today, is to recapture the morality of sex. And finally, we need to recapture the relationship of roles to gender. Now, I believe that this will not only safeguard the life of the church, but it's also highly attractive to the wider culture. I mean, the loveliness, the health of the Christian lifestyle, marriage as the norm, singleness to the glory of God, children as the highest blessing that can be given to a husband and wife, that children trump career and social advancement. I mean, all of this needs to be retaught and reinforced and lived out among us in the church. And in this way, the the Christian way of living is again given the central place that it deserves among us. Now, before I talk about the Christian sexual ethic, I need to say a word about how to interact with brokenness and sin and, and the fact that so many young men and women are now found in anything less than an ideal situation. You know, at the very outset, we should say that whatever else we say about Christian morality, we are not moralists. We are about the gospel. We're about grace. We're about redemption. We're about restoration. The very nature of the gospel of Jesus begins with the statement that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're not made right with God by getting everything right, but by coming to him who sent his son to pay the penalty for our sins so that he might reconcile us to himself by his grace. If in hearing what God wants of you in terms of sexual wholeness that you feel tempted to despair, please don't despair. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And furthermore, the Christian community must be a community that expresses the grace that is found in the gospel. But if we do not express the Christian ethic, well, then we condemn one generation after the next to live in spiritual darkness. 
And so as this is a one-week series on the value of family, I think it necessary to talk about the ethics of sex. Let's begin by saying that the Bible views sexual intimacy in marriage as a great blessing that has been given to us from our Creator. Genesis 1.28 commands the man and his wife to be fruitful and multiply. Genesis 2.24 says that both the man and his wife were naked and felt no shame. Proverbs 5.19, as we have already seen, commands the man, and I quote, Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Or 1 Corinthians 7, verse 3 to 5 says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but her husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again. You see, in each of these biblical quotations, we get a picture of a God who commends sexual pleasure in marriage. Sex is the gift of God to his children. He means to use this gift to bind a husband and a wife together. And he means to use this gift as the means that he has chosen to bring the next generation of his children into the world. But having said this, it must also be seen that with this gift has come a terrible weapon. Evil men have always known that rape violates. Adultery has destroyed not only many a marriage, but it has snatched a life of harmony and happiness from a young child's life. I've said it before, But I'd like to repeat myself on this issue. Sex is very much like the gift of fire. Put fire into a fireplace and it will warm the house and it will provide it with light in a dark, cold winter night. But place that fire on the living room floor outside of the boundaries of the brick fireplace and it will burn down the house and sometimes bring financial ruin and sometimes even cause death. And that's exactly what we have with the gift of sex. The fireplace are the boundaries that God has placed around sex. It's called marriage. And when the fire escapes those boundaries, it can light a forest on fire and destroy not only individuals, but burn down an entire civilization. Gratitude, the quality of being thankful and readiness to show appreciation. Well, as part of the team at Back to the Bible Canada, we want to express our ready gratitude for your kindness. Your generosity during our June-July match campaigns exceeded expectations. He is a great God. Your partnership not only helped meet the fiscal year-end goal, but reinforced the presence of those across our nation who embrace a passion for Bible teaching. To express our appreciation, we want to send all of our listeners a free copy of the book, Family Worship. It's a wonderful tool that helps incorporate worship into the family home. So thanks, and stay with us as together we strive to champion the truth of God's Word. Call and ask for your free copy of Family Worship, or offer a gift this month to support the ongoing ministries of Back to the Bible Canada at 1-800-663-2425, or visit backtothebible.ca. Such is the nature of the gift of God in a sin-cursed world. That thing called sex, which practiced in righteousness, brings life. But when practiced in sin, brings death. 
Therefore, to miss a clear teaching on God's plan for your sexuality, this must become a part of the teaching for the next generation. See, in the next few minutes, I want to share with you seven reasons why adultery is wrong. And I must confess, I am borrowing some of these headings from another source, although I don't know who wrote them. But the details behind these headings are my thoughts informed by Scripture. So so let me go through this. Why is adultery wrong? First, adultery is wrong because the Bible says so. And I need to say that because in some Christian circles, we've hesitated to say this. But listen, the Bible is the Word of God. And when God speaks, His speech doesn't start the dialogue. His speech ends the dialogue. Exodus 20, verse 14, which is the seventh command, says, You shall not commit adultery. And furthermore, the tenth command even forbids us from desiring our neighbor's wife. Not only are we forbidden from having her, we are forbidden from desiring her. Second, adultery is wrong because for us, as New Testament believers, marriage is compared to the relationship of Christ to his church. In Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and his church. See, whenever there is adultery among believers, it violates the very nature of the comparison between marriage and the church. That's why adultery destroys the church. Third, adultery is wrong because it is a deep sin against our own bodies. 1 Corinthians 6, 18-20 speaks about more than adultery, but it also does speak about adultery. And here's what it says. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I wonder if you've ever heard someone say, you know, it's my body. See, I don't know how anyone can consistently say that. You didn't acquire your own body. It was given to you. And for us as Christians, we also know that God owns everything, including our bodies. Furthermore, our bodies have become a temple of the Holy Spirit. Adultery is desecrating that which is sacred, your own body. Fourth, adultery is wrong because it destroys trust in marriage. In here, I think it's necessary to remember that the Bible makes a distinction between forgiveness and reconciliation. See, forgiveness ought to be an impulse within us. It ought to become a spirit-directed, instinctual reaction when we are wronged. But reconciliation, among other things, demands the restoration of trust. And in the case of adultery, this matter is a difficult matter. How shall the wife of an adulterer again receive him into her arms and share herself with him who has violated all that is sacred? It it can be done, but the restoration of trust is a painful process and requires a great amount of confession and a clear commitment to becoming transparent and vulnerable, and in the process, giving reasons to believe again. Fifth, adultery is wrong because it harms the life of children and of the next generation. And in some cases where there is adultery, in order to conceal it, an adulterous couple has aborted a child. Certainly, the adultery has destroyed that child. But the children of the marriage are also harmed, for in many cases, the marriage is destroyed, and a home that should have been secure and loving, filled with promise, is now ripped apart. Sixth, adultery is wrong because it destroys the adulterer's life. Proverbs 7.23 says, He does not know that it will cost him his life. 
Indeed, although in some cases murder has occurred because of adultery, in many cases adultery has cost men and women their friends, their reputation, and the ability of others to believe that they ever speak the truth. And I have a seventh reason why adultery is wrong. Adultery is wrong because in every case, adultery uses lies and deceit to conceal it. I notice that Satan is not called the father of adultery, but he is called the father of lies. And in order to conceal our adultery, lies are imperative, and all liars enter into a deep spiritual union with Satan himself. And so we have an impressive list. Adultery is wrong because it violates the scripture. It harms the church. It's a deep sin against our own bodies. It destroys intimacy in marriage. It harms children and destroys the adulterer's own life and puts the adulterer in a spiritual union with Satan. I wonder if we shouldn't learn that list and repeat that list when we're being tempted. Randy Alcorn, in his book on sexual purity, gives his own long list on all the things that would happen to him personally should he commit adultery. You know, if today you are committing adultery, might I commend to you that you go see a godly pastor and then make plans with him to meet with your spouse and with your children and tell them the truth. As painful as all of that seems, it's far more painful to remain in the darkness of sin. But what about premarital sex? Or what about an engaged couple sleeping together? I mean, after all, they have already made a commitment to each other. And what about all the other kinds of sex where one person says, you know, it didn't mean anything. And what about two people who are living together and have been doing so for years? And what about homosexual sex that's a part of a long-term loving relationship? Are we to put each one of these many different categories of sexual encounter into, into the same category? Now, what I have to say is directed not at people of no faith, but to people who claim that they have surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There is for us but one starting point for all things, and not just for sex, but for all things. Let me return to 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now, if you do not belong to yourself, but belong to him, we're not like Frank Sinatra who sang, I did it my way. Indeed, if we are to sing that song, we should change the lyrics and sing, I did it God's way. We begin with saying, my God has created my body. My body is created either male or female. I was assigned a gender by God. I did not assign that gender to myself. The reason God assigned me my gender is that I should leave my father and mother and cling to my wife or my husband, and the two of us should become one flesh. In this way, God would ensure a holy and godly offspring. Furthermore, the becoming of one flesh is accomplished not by personal commitments. It's done as a covenant before God. This, as we have seen, is illustrated in the marriage ceremony. This and only this is God's plan for our sexuality. And this stops being a problem when we're yielded to God and his will for our lives. We as Christians have been taught by Jesus to pray, not my will, but thine be done. This is his plan. Now, having said that, let's see what Jesus says about sex when it is not married sex and when it's not adultery. And before I read Matthew 15, 19, let me describe a word that Jesus uses frequently. The Greek word is the word porneia. Now, in our world, the, the contemporary word is pornography. It's derived from that word. But in the Greek language, porneia didn't mean pornography. So just to be clear, pornography would be a subtitle under porneia. You see, most often when translators translate the word porneia, they translate it as sexual uncleanness. 
or as sexual immorality. And that seems to cover a lot of territory. So we can translate porneia as all sexual activity outside of marriage. It covers everything from adultery to two teens having sex in the back of a car, to a couple in a live-in relationship, to homosexual sex, to sex with a prostitute, to a short affair with the office secretary. According to biblical ways of thinking, there are only two categories, that which is sanctioned by God and that which, by very nature, is unclean. Now, with that as a background, let me read Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 to 20. This is Jesus speaking. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, that's porneia, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Now, I know some of us are shocked that Jesus would talk this way. From Jesus' perspective, two 16-year-olds having sex in the back of a car, which, by the way, is called sexual immorality, from Jesus, that's in the same category as adultery, theft, false witness, and slander. All of these defile a person. They render a person unclean. So let me get back to the issue of repentance and of the grace of God in finding reconciliation. And here's my point. Until we recognize that sin is sin, we won't repent of it and we won't seek the grace of God. And until we repent of our sin, we won't find the grace of God. I would have us not be perfect, but find the grace of God, repent of that which is sexually unclean, and turn to the Lord with all of our hearts. Okay, John, here's my question. Why does it seem like so many people today are are so confused about the issue of sexual purity? Yeah, and let me speak directly to Christian people. And, and one of the things that I'd say long before we talk about sexual purity, you know, we really should talk about biblical literacy. I mean, the reality is that there is an appalling biblical illiteracy today, and so many people are confused because they're actually not reading the Bible. And so they hear uh, so-called evangelicals who now are changing their, their view of all manner of sexual issues, and they're themselves confused. They're saying, well, if these guys don't know, well, then how can anybody say that they know? And so they're you know, their approach to the Christian faith is what other people say rather than what they actually read in the text of Scripture. And when you read the text of Scripture, it's actually not a confusing array at all. The Bible is remarkably clear on this issue. And because it's clear, we in the body of Christ should be clear as well. So the point being, let's get back to the Bible. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. You may or may not have noticed, we're mentioning Back to the Bible Canada's Israel experience in May 2018 less and less frequently. Well, here's the reason. We're already 70% full. That's right. So if you'd like to join Back to the Bible Canada's Bible teacher, Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway, and special musical guest and gospel award-winning artist, Andrew Marcus, for this spectacular journey, do so now and avoid disappointment. In Israel, we'll be visiting so many extraordinary sites, such as King David's city, the Western Wall, the Garden Tomb, the Jordan River, and we'll even sail the Sea of Galilee and enjoy Bible teaching and worship. The list of locations goes on and on. And afterward, you'll never read the Bible with the same eyes again. 
So join us and call today to avoid disappointment at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.